Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Vishal Shah, founder of Alpha5, a crypto derivatives exchange. In this episode, we cover the landscape of the Bitcoin and Ethereum options markets and Vishal's thoughts on DEX infrastructure, liquidity, and risk. He also talks through some innovative features of the Alpha5 platform and shares how users can get a claim on a proportion of Alpha5's insurance fund with A5T, the exchange's governance token. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Michelle. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm quite excited. I'm also excited to chat about the crypto markets and learn more about Alpha 5. Before we get started, would be great if you can share more about your trading background in the traditional finance space and how you got sucked into the world of crypto. Yeah, sure. I'll try to put some color on it. In the legacy world, uh, or the old world as I refer to it, I was involved in global macro, FX options, mostly derivative space for about 10 or 11 years, sell side, buy side, number of institutions. And towards the tail end of it, I was losing interest. Naturally, because of the narrative that's prevailing everywhere right now is is that everything is simply too big to fail as a function of liquidity. And this started from about 2013. Uh, Unfortunately, I was not involved in the space in 2013. It wasn't until 2016 where I was probably dedicating more time to this space than I was to my real job. And then I kind of took the plunge and I started exploring uh, mostly Bitcoin futures and options. And well, there were no real options then, but mostly Bitcoin futures and um, derivative plays that you could kind of look for. What I saw was an interesting pricing dynamic, which was uh, clearly opportunistic for me. And so I kind of decided to pursue that a bit more, was trying to learn more about the protocol level of things at the same time. And around 2018, well, tail end of 2017, I shifted from just being a passionate hobby to something a bit more concrete. I helped set up some derivatives infrastructure and a institutional funnel, as one did in early 2018. And then I pivoted to become, you know, to go a bit closer to trading and start up one of the larger Bitcoin options trading firms. So kind of kept going further and further down the rabbit hole, always wanted to explore how do we increase liquidity? What's the right infrastructure? How do we make a largely disparate market a bit more unison, given that we're all spread out across the globe? Is there a standardization for trade? Are we approaching it you know, in a fragmented manner? Uh, is there a way to kind of combine all these things? So that was kind of what always 
intrigued me. And while I was doing this, though, I was kind of fighting the good fight in the sense that I was always chasing rubber stamps from regulators, be it on this side of the pond or the other. And it dawned on me at some point last year that this is probably not the right pursuit, kind of antithetical to the entire spirit of crypto. Now, not to say that this space doesn't need any sort of oversight. It's more to say that the people you speak to naturally to get message that you want to get across probably isn't going to get across, at least until there's a changing of the guard. And, and that has a much longer timeline. So for me, I, I kind of pivoted and uh, said, okay, let me go blank slate for now and figure out what's the best thing to do. Naturally, in about a couple of weeks of off time, I was approached to start Alpha 5. And here we are about nine months later and ready to launch. And you mentioned you set up a few desks. This was back in 2018, right? Early 2019. Do you wish that you are setting up now in a much more mature derivatives space? Or looking back, are you pretty satisfied with the way that things turned out when the market was less mature? Uh, it's a double-edged sword in the sense that liquidity often wasn't there at times, especially say at some parts of early 2018, you tried trading Bitcoin options and the numbers just didn't make sense. Uh, you ended up becoming a large part of the open interest, which is, uh, it's a, well, I guess a ego feeding, but at the same time, it's not great when you're actually looking for an exit at times. So it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really work out that well. I mean, the market is maturing. I they still think it's far from maturation. But the point of setting up Alpha 5, we actually didn't intend to set it up as an exchange. It happened to take that form organically. It was to address particularly the pain points that I had from the active management side. There were certain instruments that simply weren't there. There were certain um, capabilities that weren't there that needed to be there. And, and I'll probably go off on a bit of a tangent here, but this industry obviously tries to fly before it can walk, right? But what we did is we leapfrogged quite a bit in derivatives infrastructure, and it simply doesn't work that way, right? I mean, the way I've kind of seen it in mental map is, is that, you know, we get this great innovation with the perpetual swap. I, I think it's beautiful, the way it works, et cetera, so forth. And that helps push forward financialization, which is what you need, right? I mean, uh, as a complete analog, we all kind of heard this by now, but derivatives in this space, what, you've got 6 billion in Bitcoin futures open interest and tag on another billion and a half, 2 billion in options. That's about 8 billion. And you got a market cap of what, 250 billion? It's fractional, right? It doesn't make sense. Whereas in legacy markets, you know, the tail wags a the dog. These markets tend to kind of push the underlying spot market. You have a heavy concentration of holdings here, which, which doesn't enable that. And so you need more, you need more financialization, right? And well, how do you do that? So perpetual swap, you do it through leverage. Well, not insane amounts of leverage, which, which is what I think is out there at the moment, but you, you need financialization. And you do that by creating products that en enable people to take on leverage bets. So you reduce the impact of concentrated spot holding. When you have these quote unquote whale moves, right? You kind of want to create an egalitarian platform. After the perp, we kind of leapfrog to options. And then for a second, we're almost like, wait, hold on a second. How does that work? You can't just go from a linear spot product to a convex product. You don't have a futures curve that far out. And so then you start seeing futures kind of, you know, put out for a while, like, you know, you go out now to like six, nine months. Okay, fine. Um, but when you start doing that, you need people to trade it out. I mean, if you think about where liquidity clears right now, right, on, on what I call linear Bitcoin derivatives, about $25 billion a day, roughly two thirds of it is clearing on the perp. Nobody's playing out the curve. Uh, actually, last we checked, it was only about a billion dollars going out more than three months, right? And you say to yourself, well, hold on a second. H how is a lending desk supposed to hedge its duration cash flows that way? How do desks uh, trade basis? I mean, basis is a, you know, is a very common instrument to trade. Because until you have interest rates that are kind of, by interest rates, I mean futures, that are 
uh, supplanted all over the place, you can't really create convexity with a great deal of efficiency. And I know there is this mad rush to go into options right now. Hey, we're going to create an options platform. Okay. Great, but in doing so, I'm not saying you're missing the forest for the trees, but you're definitely leaving a lot on the table here. And that's where I want to come in and plug it because, again, from that active management side, I saw, hey, yeah, I could trade the option, but at the end of the month, I couldn't roll my future. You know, imagine you're rolling a five to $10 million position when there's no basis market or a roll market. What are you going to do? And so we said, okay, let's try figuring this out. What's the best way to do it? That, that's where all the inspiration for the products for Alpha 5 came from. The idea was to kind of plug those holes because there's a lot of alpha to be garnered from there. Yeah, I, I love the rundown that you just gave of the various financial instruments that we see in the crypto derivatives market today. And that's exactly what I want to chat about. Uh, this is the sixth episode in our DeFi Defined series. So some of our listeners might be asking, you know, what are we doing here talking about crypto derivatives in the so-called CeFi space? But I think as we advance our conversation in DeFi, it's really important also to highlight what's happening in the CeFi space and talk about the comparisons between the things that uh, a trader like yourself is observing between the CFI and the DeFi space, right? So over the course of this conversation, definitely want to weave these two themes in. Why don't we just dive right in and talk about crypto options specifically, you know, what interesting flows are you seeing in the crypto options market today? Yeah, crypto options have this tendency to be viewed as an augmented yield instrument. So I think the narrative that was kind of taking birth in early to mid 2018 definitely had a bit more traction last year is finally seen as commonplace now which is structured products. So you have natural hedgers doing what we call callers, selling call buying put, selling call buying put. And oftentimes they'll be doing this in short dated strikes. What you'll see, and this is Bitcoin I'm referencing, is, is that you'll get a lot of short exposure in the front dates. Now, these people are naturally hedged anyways. That doesn't really matter because what matters is what the market maker is kind of taking on its position. They get a long gamma position, et cetera. That's absolutely fine because that means that the market should become naturally a little bit more sticky uh, unless the other guys have collateral issues and that kind of cascades and so forth. And, and that's your natural suppression of vol, right? So what you'll usually see is this ad, you know, vol curve. And what you'll see is the front end, barring every now and then when you move five or 10% and the offers kind of just like disappear, you'll kind of see it kind of get squashed all the time. Whereas there's very limited interest in the back end. So everything's like sub three month in, in option speak, let's call it gamma, right? Meaning that you're Delta positions really change on smaller movements of the underlying of the spot. And further out, it's really about the implied vault because everything is a little sticky. And so further out, nobody really wants to play. There isn't much interest, which is interesting because all it does is it kind of follows the front end. But you can't really put a big position out on the far end because there's no liquidity there. Nobody wants to trade there. People say, well, hold on a second. I can go try to figure that out and kind of take an educated guess and try to maybe squeeze out some alpha or I could look at like all this alpha right in front of me and just take the low hanging fruit. And that's the natural play that you've seen. It's a function of where these hedging requirements have kind of come from. And then speculators obviously have kind of compounded the issue by saying, hey, you know, I could just earn a little bit of an extra yield. I think if you were to put on scales the understanding and the risks of the market versus the actual participation in the market, by those same counterparties, it would be heavily on the side of participation, <laughs> which is a little bit scary, but I think it's it's starting to balance out a bit more. That's been a natural dynamic for some time. So I'm looking at a snapshot of SKU from August 8th and SKU from August 12th, so just a few days in between. And the chart basically went 
from favoring calls to puts. I'm, I'm curious because you, you talked about that point of selling calls and buying puts. There's been a lot of call overriding in the space recently, given that the primary theme right now is the search for yield. Mm-hmm. And so why do you think the market suddenly flipped within just a few days? Is it in part due to the call overriding or is it a reflection of a generally stressed market? What's what's going on? Yeah, where we have been with regards to skew, risky, smile, all analogs, is that since basically mid to end of July, we flipped heavily in favor of calls. And that's consistent with spot, right? Like sometimes when you start start seeing spot moves, people will kind of start looking at this. And when we started this little move from, I say in Bitcoin, from say 9,000 and upwards, you saw this uh, tendency to kind of, well, favor top side. When you look at the natural skew right now, it's kind of far dated, say six months again, where there's probably less interest, it's still in favor of calls. Mm-hmm. Three months, you're still kind of in favor of calls. And then back to the short dates, you're, you're back at parity. And so it's a gyrating toy. If you actually looked at where historically Bitcoin skew has been, that was kind of like the most it ever kind of goes in favor of calls. Now, I don't see it as an anomaly. No. Interesting. Then, you know, we've been talking about Bitcoin options. Anything interesting that you see in the ETH option space? Yeah, so it's actually been top of my mind for some time just because uh, not being a maxi mini, whatever you know the labels are these days, but I see naturally Ethereum as uh, having a bit more value. And I've always kind of wondered, hey, you know, well, what does this optionality in this space look like? Well, it's a much smaller market to start, right? It's tiny compared to Bitcoin. But when you start looking at the skew there and the smile there, it, it's uh, it's crazy. It's all bid for the top side. I was looking at end of year, you know, this is just a few days ago, end of year uh, strikes on the top side. And it was just like, if you looked at the, equivalent of like 20 delta strikes so you find the strike given your delta your delta being in simple terms your probability of kind of getting there it was enormous in terms of spot difference the market was telling you a 10 or 15 percent fall was as likely as a 200 percent gain so it was beginning to kind of write the story and unlike bitcoin options and ethereum options you kind of actually see a a lot of activity further out the curve. Mm. Actually, most of the open interest is probably around December. I sense this is a function of, hey, when and if we ever get over some sort of protocol level impasses or, or get some improvements or gas comes down or whatever, right? And maybe it doesn't come down. It creates a supply issue that everybody talks about. But whatever it is, there is this future expectation of Ethereum rising in prices. I don't think there's natural hedging going on there. No, I don't think Ethereum miners are naturally using the same sort of structured products at scale as Bitcoin, I guess, miners are. And as a result, you probably have a naturally more speculative market in Ethereum. That's probably telling the tale of what's going on in, in those far dates. Yeah, I guess it's generally less liquid relative to Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. You know, something else that you tweeted is on open interest. I'll just read out the tweet here. A common practice is to overestimate the implications of options OI, especially when this is dollarized. For instance, I've been told by a few people, options OI is a few billion now. Okay, true, but the corollary can be misconstrued as it's not like for like with futures. This makes total sense, right? I mean, the total notional funded for options is quite small compared to the typical OI that you see, whereas in like futures, it reflects more of an outright position, right? So yeah, talk, talk more about that. Yeah. And and for that, I think I probably just had some sort of decorative brainwave of using some fancy language. But in short, it's basically saying when you look at open interest, you're multiplying by the strike, right? So if you've got X amount at like, you know, 20,000 
strike, the way open interest is calculated makes you think, oh, there's that much dollarized interest. What you really should be looking at is delta, right? What is the net delta position of open interest across the curve? That is materially less. If you think about the likelihood of hitting those strikes, given, the, I guess, the dispersion of those strikes, it's nothing close to the one and a half billion sticker image that you kind of see. It's kind of, well, much, much less. I don't know the exact number right off the top of my head, but it's materially less. The point of that was to highlight that, okay, first, let's not kid ourselves that options matter for spot prices. It's very much the other way around, or futures prices. It's very much the other way around. Second is, is that they actually don't even matter as much as you think that they might matter in terms of actual notionals that are actually kind of usually conveyed. So that was kind of just to drive home the point that this is a very, very small market still. You mentioned the derivatives market as a whole is quite small, but as a proportion of the market, perps are, what, two-thirds of all Bitcoin linear derivatives volumes. So, yeah, why do people prefer to trade perps over futures with an expiry? Yeah, I think what one is going to be first mover in the sense of like when people realize that it was effectively leveraged spot, right? Historically, futures, say you go back 2017, et cetera, 2016, have traded at a premium right? A huge premium. Oftentimes you get a one month premium and, and, and this is actual unannualized yield of 10, 15%. You've seen those numbers, right? Somebody comes to the platform that prevails then and says, oh, do I buy a future 15% higher than spot or do I buy this leveraged spot position? I don't really know what funding is. Okay. I'm paying 20 basis points, you know, in the next eight hours, I'll figure out a way. Uh, you know, I, I have a short term view here. So th I think that attitude propelled a adoption of the product. Right. And then obviously people came to understand it, et cetera. And it had an escape velocity and it created its ecosystem. So perpetual is kind of always stuck. Now, futures are an interesting paradigm because, yes, futures technically represent what you think the future value of something might be or what the market is telling you. But that has to be a function of something. Right. And. What it naturally is a function of, in most cases, I mean, if I look at it from an FX perspective, you can look at it from a commodities perspective, et cetera. In commodities, you call it a cost of carry, whereas a cost of storage, cost, you know, in, in this case, the analog would be all kinds of things, uh, potential blockchain costs, et cetera, whatever. You, you can kind of play with that. But the meat of it is financing costs, right, which is from the FX base, which is your differential in yield and differential in what a Bitcoin yield is versus a dollar yield is. Now, that didn't really take shape until about 2018. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and even to this day, if you were to go to a random person, and I don't mean creme de la creme, I just mean like a random distribution of people and you say, hey, what's Bitcoin interest and what's dollar interest in this ecosystem? They'd be like, what? They're like, I don't know. Right. But in reality, the price differential is what should determine that. And, and, and a lot of sophisticated traders will look at it that way. OK, you know, dollar yield is 8 percent. Bitcoin yield is 3 to 4 percent. OK, so this curve should trade at a 3 to 4 percent premium. Everything else is not there. Well, if it's not there, then something needs to adjust, whether it's a lending desk that needs to adjust its rates or whether the futures curve needs to adjust it. They're, they're heavily interlinked or there's an arbitrage. Now, is the arbitrage always worth it? No, because you have a whole vector of new risks that come into play when you try to exploit that in terms of credit, counterparty, collateralization, actual margin utilized, et cetera. So you, you run into various different things that happen. But nevertheless, efficient markets tell you that that should kind of happen. And it's moving that way, which is extremely encouraging. Coming back to why has futures activity been little is because I don't think people actually understand how the future is priced. It's not simply a function as it was in 2016 or 2017 of somebody saying, I think Bitcoin is going to be higher in three months, so I'm just going to buy it. That's that. It's now more sophisticated and resembling a sane market. 
Interesting. Relative to Q1, funding on leveraged exchanges right now doesn't seem to be that high, actually. I, I don't know if this is an interesting point or not, but I mean, the perps market doesn't seem very stretched. But as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the options market, even though to you, it's not that surprising, there's been more aggressive reactions in the options market. So is this something to pay attention to? Or just kind of a blip and, you know, we'll, we'll start to see more leveraged positions on exchanges. So I, I've been a um, heavy, uh, well, critic of the leverage that is typically offered on exchanges. I think anything above 35 or even 30x is suicidal. So Alpha 5, we've taken a deliberate approach to offer 25x. Why? Because we've seen from various studies that effective leverage is usually around 33, 34x anyways. So why offer anything else? Because then anybody that's beyond that becomes a tail risk and a domino risk for when things go bad. And when they go bad, they really can kind of cascade, right? We, 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 we've seen episodes of that in March. We all have theories as to what happened. We all know what could have happened. And the point is, is that that's a function of leverage. Leverage, volatility, liquidation, they're heavily intertwined, right? It's not, I think, completely unlinked that BitMEX OI hasn't recovered a tremendous amount. Mm -hmm. As a function of that, you're kind of seeing less funding magnitudes naturally because uh, you're not seeing as much leverage. And when people go out and pay any funding they want as a function of saying, I think I'm just going to do this at any price. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I have no other way. Now you have different outlets to expose that view. Now you have the sensibility to say, okay, maybe perhaps it doesn't make as much sense. And so you have this distribution going on, people accessing different channels, uh, getting to the underlying instruments. And if that's the case, then funding shouldn't be there. Funding is always intended to anchor the instrument to what it's intended to be anchored to. We want to give you spot and we are going to charge you a minimal um, funding rate, the funding rate having two components, which is the interest rate component for Bitcoin, which is uh, an interesting topic in itself. Mm -hmm. And then the other is what we call the premium index, which is how much does it deviate from the underlying. And that's typically always been the overarching factor when it comes to calculations and how the magnitude of funding that you kind of usually see. That's kind of dis not disappeared, but it, it's been more mitigated for Bitcoin, right? You go now look at all these other alternative perps that are out there for different coins. And you'll see that resembles what Bitcoin was about a year or two years ago when you saw far greater magnitudes of funding all over the place. So it's interesting, but it's also telling of the sophistication that is kind of coming into Bitcoin. And it's also something that makes me naturally think that we've probably reduced the likelihood of tail risk distribution of volatility, meaning that we have historically seen Bitcoin volatility range from, say, 40 to you know, I think in March we hit maybe over 200 or something like that. It, it really depends on how you calculate, you know, whether we hit that or didn't based on uh, liquidations and where the mark price was and, you know, if there was a price there or not. Um, but but that, that, that's been a fair historical range. I think we are going to struggle to ever see those numbers again on the top side. If we do, that probably likely coincides with Bitcoin going materially higher than lower. And the reason is in part due to the sophistication of capital that's come in, CME, et cetera. I mean, I, I'd love to kind of make that point very quickly is, is that what you'll see is, is that the CME now, I think about has about the third highest OI as far as uh, futures are concerned, but it does so on far less daily volume. That tells you that capital is far more sticky. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's not really bothered by the gyrations that you're kind of seeing. I mean, there's a lot of other implications from that as well, but that's definitely one of them. And if that's the case, then the signaling is that uh, here you go. We've dedicated a little bit of capital. Um, oh, it just happens to be the third highest uh, across mm -hmm. crypto altogether, right? Uh, and uh, by the way, we don't really care. 
<laughs> like, you know, nobody's on that kind of leverage. Oh, there's a margin call. Don't worry. Just call me. I'll, I'll forward you some capital. That doesn't happen on crypto exchanges. That can't happen on crypto yeah, exchanges. Right. You're clear a custodian exchange in one, right? I've never been an advocate or really gotten involved in the conversation of, you know, the herd is coming, but there are bigger players to them. Their capital allocation to the space probably means a little bit less in terms of the notional that they've staked compared to the native crypto holders that are kind of there or native crypto players that are playing. And that's a good sign because what that means is that when there's something opportunistic, they'll kind of come in and make sure that those tail risks don't really materialize because for them, that'll be a great arbing opportunity. And that stability in market that naturally ensues as a result of that probably has good optics for this space for all the uninitiated. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. I want to go back to one of your earlier points about the need for greater financialization. And for Alpha 5, you guys are working on some very interesting, innovative products. You know, just a few months ago, if you wanted to arb rates on two different futures contracts, there was no product that allowed you to trade that seamlessly in a single execution. You guys are working on a product called the Futures Swap. Can you tell us what this product is and why it is important to traders? Yeah, of course. Uh, so th- th- this is, uh, you know, as you rightly pointed out, this is at the core of our offering. Um, so what a future swap or sometimes referred to as a spread, a future spread, a calendar spread, all, all the same instrument, what it effectively is, is saying you are trading between two different futures or a perp and a future on the futures curve with a single click. Now, why does this matter? Why does anybody want to do this? Well, let's look at it from the crypto fund perspective. First perspective, you're long a futures position. Say today is the September expiry of the futures or you know tomorrow is a September futures expiry. And you say, okay, well, I've got a million dollar position on or a whatever, you know, a million dollar position on. If I do nothing, my futures will, will expire and I will have no position. I don't want that because I need to retain that position because if that goes off, then blah, blah, blah. I don't have the right position I want, et cetera. I'll just have P&L. So what options do you have? No pun intended. Um, you could do one of a few things, right? One is, yes, you could take that delivery and get a cash settlement so you have no position anymore. You could go ahead and you could manually try to say, okay, uh, since I'm long September, I'll try to sell some September and buy some December. Okay, go ahead and try it. You'll butcher yourself with the intraday volatility that you, you know, that's there. It's heuristics. The actual cost of transaction, the actual cost of execution is materially higher. You can do it algorithmically. Again, same issue. It mitigates it somewhat. But the point is, is that you still have single leg risk, meaning that, hey, you know, say you tried to buy uh, half a million or sell a half a million in September. You got done, but you were unable to buy it back in December. You're short a half million dollars and the market has now just rallied. Uh, what are you going to do, right? You've lost on, out on capital. So what we said is, there has to be a way to kind of roll your positions. It just simply does not make sense. Like th- th- this is simple stuff. When you have features, you need this stuff, right? And so we said, okay, well, we can offer a spread market. That in itself is helpful. That achieves this. But there's a huge benefit to what we call implied order books. Um, implied order books are something created by you know, naturally by the CME. ICE adopted it. Uh, they have a slightly different version. But what it's basically saying is, is that, hey, 
if I've got a price in a perpetual swap and I've got a price in a future, let's just use those two instruments for now, a bid and an offer and a bid and an offer. That means there's a bid and an offer between the two. And that means that that price should always dynamically adjust as any of those other two uh, legs move. And in addition, if I trade any of those implied prices, I should always be done on an equal and opposite leg. That last part being most important because those things are not averted while you're doing it algorithmically or manually. Um, and so you have this ability now to always kind of execute in a single click these positions. Now, you may say, well, okay, that helps crypto funds to an extent, roll their positions, manage them. There's a use case for it. There's a, you know, a TAM as we kind of like to call it. Um, but what more? Well, it also helps create what we call basis trades, right? So now yield is all is all talk of the town, right? And you know, well, I'd love to talk about APYs and well, why I think they're absolutely <laughs> rubbish and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, the the point is, is that when we when you start looking at a futures curve now, which actually has a term structure, you start saying to yourself, well, hold on a second, I didn't trade December and March futures, but now I log into the platform and I see this December March spread, oh, 300 bucks. That, I think that's a bit steep, or I think that's a bit cheap. I can buy one and sell the other. Now, you've got lower risk than you did in underlying spot, right? Because it's not like you're buying a December and selling a March or something like that. You're, you're trading the spread differential, your cross margin. You're making sure that you know, you're not exposed to single leg in any certain instance. But by using implied order books, because we have implied out technology as well, the, the, the first exchange to offer that, what will happen is, is that by offering liquidity to that swap or that spread, you're going to be creating phantom orders in both the December and March future. So you have inadvertently, while trying to just execute your spread and your swap, created orders in two other order books. And that's the beauty of it, right? That's the beauty of these implied order books, because the amount of liquidity that you're tapping for every organic contract that you have has a nonlinear increase. So what I mean by that is the following. So we're coming out with perpetual swap and three quarterly future. So we'll have perpetual swap, September, December, March future, four products, right? As a function of having those four products, we'll have 10 contracts. Six of them, we don't actually need to show liquidity in. If we showed liquidity in those six, they will help the original four. So in terms of liquidity mining, this is what I see as liquidity <laughs> mining because this 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 is this this is beautiful. It's synergistic. There's an there's an exponential some sort of x to the whatever power function you want to call um, relationship with how it increases liquidity. And this is now enabled for anything, right? So the moment we say, okay, fine, we could turn on Ether. Well, we could flip a switch and turn on for Ether. Now anybody could trade the term structure. Now now a BlockFi or, you know, I'm not going to take any names, but like all the desks, right? Celsius, Genesis, it doesn't matter, right? They're all there, all, all great people. They could come to this and say, okay, wow, I've got borrow here, lend here, borrow here, lend here. I can just trade the swap. I've matched my exact duration, my exact liabilities. I don't have to do anything else. That's the intent. Or we can kind of go ahead and say, okay, you know what? We're going to launch a completely different product for fun, for giggles, right? Like we get to the next presidential election and, you know, we have two candidates from a certain party. Well, we, we can launch linear contracts on either of them, um, but we can naturally have a spread without trying. The spread order technology is there, right? Um, we're not necessarily going to do that. There's no plans to do that. But I'm saying that, you know, we can create those things um, because... The idea here was to create an infrastructure that enables liquidity to intertwine itself and imply prices for things that you don't necessarily need to show external liquidity for. So that's the approach we've taken. 
So all the DeFi farmers listening in on this episode, this is the sustainable liquidity mining that you should really be focusing on. <laughs> well, I'm not saying EMs aren't good, yeah. But, but, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this, this future swap then will really be able to do what we desperately need right now in the derivative space, particularly for options, which is driving the curve out further, right? So that people can actually price stuff six months nine month part of the curve, right? Yeah, it, it, it is very true. And it, it holds true for options, right? Like, so, so I'll give you a case in point. Where, so imagine a miner comes to an options house, right? And says, hey, I need to do a very big trade in the March options expiry. Okay, well, there's a hedge on the underlying, right? And what, what happens is that there's a delta for that March, right? Um, so the, the, the mining house will want to do it. The guy who's making the price will say, okay, yeah, I'll make the price, but I need to be able to hedge the March future because it might be a huge delta. Well, uh, okay, uh, how do I do that? Well, there's no liquidity. Well, products like these build out the liquidity. So once that's there, all this sort of stuff is a bit more enabled, right? You, it, it, they're, they're able to show a better price to the miner because there's more liquidity in the March future, which is potentially a function of having these prices being implied out and building out this infrastructure, right? So it definitely has a lot of vertical benefits to, we like to think, unrelated products, but really it, it lays the foundations. You know, apart from the future swap and a couple other products that you mentioned, one thing that you guys are coming out with as well is called digital options. What's different about your options from other options contracts out there? And who's going to be there day one trading these contracts? Yeah, the European Digis are basically, I'm not going to say they're ready or they're not ready. It's not our V1 product, but it's definitely not an ideation, put it that way. So it's well beyond that. The purpose of the European Digis was the following, right? I think options are not the right retail product, period. Uh, vanilla options. Uh, you're not going to create a vanilla options trader overnight. Uh, I mean, at least a proper one. Um, what you want to do is reduce the parameters in uh, terms of engagement, uh, in terms of understanding risk and managing risk, right? And you want to do it as PL. You don't want to do it as. Uh, Greek, second order, third order, whatever it is. Because naturally, imagine the guy's reaction. If volatility was very high and he bought a Bitcoin call, um, spot does nothing or trickles up and vol collapses. Uh, he loses money on his option. Uh, trying to reconcile and explain why that happened necessarily is not the easiest task because uh, you can kind of open up a Pandora's box in terms of conveying certain equations in layman's terms, which you might as well go write Hull 2.0 or, you know, another Natenberg's like, you know, you know, book or something like that. So I think the adoption barrier is quite large uh, for vanilla options for retail. I wanted to create a product where the ability for retail to engage was far easier. Um, and without giving away a lot about the USP, European digitals, which come from the world of uh, FX. I mean, there's American digitals as well. There's European digis. I, I think barrier risk is a bit silly in this space at the moment. So we've called European digitals. Basically, it says, hey, why don't you tell me where you think Bitcoin is going to be at a certain time? And I will tell you what the price of that outcome is. And I'll tell you what the reward is, right? So all the parameters are known beforehand. You know the strike, you know your risk, you know your reward. There's nothing else that can happen. So this can be a set and forget trade. Whereas with the vanilla option, you could have a spike through, come back, et cetera, whatever. This is all dependent on expiration, right? So you can say, oh, by the end of the week, I think Bitcoin is going to be above 12 grand. Well, here's the price for that. Here's how much you want to invest. And here's what the outcome can be. It's path independent in that sense. And it's beautiful because now the trader is managing 
PNL, risk management, which they already know how to do. We are not introducing new parameters for them to kind of observe. And so its natural outreach is amplified. That was the idea behind it. There were various iterations of it that we're working on, but the idea of making sure it's a bit more gamified is there. I know some people have taken the lead on this, uh, and, and, I, and I think that's very much the right way of doing it. The point is, is you will have a natural outreach that is much larger if you use these types of options. Now, European digitals are nothing but a concoction of vanillas. You want to call them call spreads, put spreads, whatever it is. But the risk management can be done that way. There are people that would want to show prices in this because there's a lot of quote-unquote edge to be had, whereas at the same time for a trader that is not so bothered as to how it's priced, but is concerned as to what the exact risk reward is, they may sacrifice that edge for that exposure. So, and you see this happening across sophisticated, or I use the word sophisticated a lot, but um, established asset markets. And I think uh, the time is right for that to be implemented here. Very exciting. Okay. So a ton of new products that will be coming out soon. Actually, I forgot to ask, when are you guys launching? couple of weeks. You know, we're, we're in rigorous testing mode right now. So it's just making sure everything is kind of knock on wood working the way it's supposed to. So it, it's exciting times, but yeah, that's the timeline. Excellent. Michelle, now I want to move on to talking about DeFi. I wanted to read out one of your tweets here. You wrote, I've had some convos in the past few days on why I think CeFi still has a strong foothold and a growing playing field at a time when the obvious move is to DeFi. Wanted to share some thoughts given our native token, A5T, is all about bringing governance and intrinsic value to C5. And then in one of the following tweets in the thread, you write, I can see that governance needs to be addressed, as does the lack of intrinsic value in exchange tokens. There needs to be a feeling of community that isn't smoke and mirrors for a reality that emulates proxy equity participation on the way up and a game of hot potato on the way down. So this A5T token is going to be a key component of the way that, I guess you bootstrap liquidity on the exchange and and get some users. The A5T token, just to give a little bit of a background, represents a tokenized claim on the Alpha 5 insurance fund. I don't think there is an exchange out there that is doing this at the moment. Can you talk more about that and share some ways that users on Alpha 5 can expect to use this A5T token? Yeah, of course. Would love to talk about it. When we created A5T, the idea was to say, how do we create some sort of value? Right. All the exchange tokens that were there before that spoke with hyperbole when I, when I write my tweets. I, I didn't see much. Um, what, what was the value? Right. Like, oh, yeah, there was no link between the performance of the exchange or anything and the value that they're accruing. Right. There's a utility for some fees, some the common bells and whistles that you see. Right. But I, I thought that you could go a little bit further. Right. And so the design of A5T was to intend to create a certain economic exposure that we were kind of, well, well we, were, we were far away from, right? So we said, well, why not use the insurance fund? It's kind of a dormant entity in that sense. With us, we're offering 25x leverage. So naturally, we have a 2% maintenance margin. And as a function of that, we have four times the industry standard in terms of our algos having buffer room to kind of you know liquidate positions. So it should be far more stable, less volatile, and all well-performing exchanges, whether their insurance funds are volatile or not, over time have seen their insurance funds climb in value. It's a function of natural activity, right? Because you always have a natural distribution of certain traders that are higher risk, lower risk, etc. But the insurance fund if the exchanges has higher if the exchange has higher volume over time, she'll should see an accumulation. So we said, okay, 
let's create that as a initial offering of some sort of value, right? And the way we do it, you know, the, 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 all the details are there in the white paper, happy to share um, without kind of getting into the boring parts. But, you know, there is, you know, you, you begin to gain uh, this option on the insurance fund if you're an A5T holder. Now, how do you accumulate this A5T, right? You can't buy it really. Uh, we didn't, we're not doing a public sale. We, you know, we had a private sale, great investors, very happy for that. And, you know, I think there might be a small offering somewhere just to kind of stay in tune with the times, um, but nothing material. The idea is that you get it by trading on the exchange, right? So once a certain set of criteria are hit, what will happen is, is the smart contract will release every single day a certain number of A5T to the exchange wallet. The exchange will distribute that to on a pro rata basis every single day by looking at who's paid the highest fees and trading for that day. So whatever it is, the distribution happens that day. Those people now have these tokens. They're not unencumbered at that point, these tokens, but naturally accumulate and as you trade naturally, they grow. The point is, is that those that are most active on the exchange are getting these tokens, right? So now you're having this distribution. So what will happen is this distribution completes over that emission schedule, which we now see to be, you know, about 15 to 16 months. Um, and during that time, we have the same um, things that we're doing in terms of we're going to be taking our revenue, we're going to be buying and burning, we're going to be, uh, you know, doing this quote unquote, um, you know, purchase at an equivalent to the insurance fund, etc. There, there is a there, there's a, a scarcity element to this as well, uh, while all this is going out. But after this is completed, now you have a distribution. So what we do is we swap. We swap and say, okay, here you go. We've got X thousand traders or whatever it is holding this token. We swap for governance tokens. Now this governance is really the key element behind all of this, right? Which is that we want you to have a say in what we do going forward because you've been the most active participants so it naturally makes sense okay well let's talk about fee models for instance should we move to a annualized fee model or a per trade fee model i think it probably makes a bit more sense that's how members at exchanges used to do it back in the day um and and, and what discount should it be what should be the minimum volume threshold that qualifies you for that okay what well, should we create x new products if we do should we use that revenue to do greater buy and burn of tokens, whatever it is. Um, basically trying to create um, a seat at the table uh, for these token holders, because you'll always have the guys that are on your the, the, the equity side of things, which is great, they'll be participating, but the token holders are likely to see more active participants because they're involved daily with the exchange, right? And so we think that's the right hybrid approach to doing things. We've gone from one extreme of kind of completely denouncing CFI, which I think is completely wrong, to uh, embracing you know smart contracts that can get exposed and tell you that they're worth nothing and still people throw couple hundred million dollars at them to now what I thought was probably maybe the right way of looking at things is to say, okay, well, yes, it's very true that there is an inevitability here. That inevitability is that we're moving towards a model where the users kind of should have a say. Now, you could label that what you want, decentralized, whatever it is. Uh, for me, a central limit order book still makes most sense. I, 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 I'm a complete believer in that, um, especially when it comes to where we are in terms of crypto adoption uh, for large scale traders. Um, but at the same time, I understand and I appreciate that people need to have a say. And how do you give them a say is by distributing these rights. And how do you you know, get them to want to have these distributed rights by creating some sort of value mechanism from day one that's simply not a future promise, which is this um, insurance fund exposure. Um, and we become simply gatekeepers of that, right? We say, here it is. This is how it's formulaically capitalized. And if it happens, it happens. It should happen, but hey, we'll honor the rules. That's the approach we've taken. Very cool. I mean, speaking of central limit order books, I'll just call it clubs. <laughs> um, what's your... Thoughts on the order book base, DEXs, 
or the automated market makers that we're seeing in DeFi right now compared to these centralized exchanges, including Alpha 5? Well, so, uh, you know, I, I looked at one said DEX the other day, I think uh, it's probably the leader in volume in terms of derivatives. I think they cleared about $10 million, which is fine, which is great, right? Like, you know, uh, as I said, I think there's an eventuality here, right? Now, how far is that eventuality? Well, it's kind of, to me, the analog is not being in the 60s and saying we're going to live on Mars in 30 years. I think it's more like, hey, when is everything going to become electric or something like that in terms of vehicles, or whatever it is, we're still further away. And the reason for me is simply the following. Well, there's a few. So if you're a trader, if you're a big scale trader, which there are a lot of them, for you to participate in heavy volumes on DEXs, you have to fall into this special niche of the Venn diagram that gives you the ability to understand protocol and these level of new risks, as well as the price. As a trader, I prefer to trade on price. I prefer to engage myself in the risk management of numbers as far as what am I risking? What am I making? I'd love to defer all those other responsibilities if I can. With DEXs and all these other instruments, now you're introducing a lot more parameters that the trader has to be wary of, right? So it works to a certain scale where it doesn't really matter because the liquidity, you could tap it on a DEX or you could tap it on a, a club it is fine. It's equivalent, right? In terms of experience. But then you get to people that want to trade a little bit more size. They naturally, I think, will be a bit more apprehensive from participating in this, not because they're unable to, but because why take on this burden, uh, this overhead of extra knowledge base if you don't need it? It's not as if this derivatives market is completely saturated as everybody likes to think. I I mean, you know, we just said, hey, you know, we got a $250 billion market cap or whatever, and we've got a $6 billion open interest in futures or $8 billion in total, you know, uh, derivatives exposure. That That's minuscule, right? Uh, the, the pie is yet to get bigger. Um, you know, so to fork off and say, hey, no, this is the only way forward. It may be true for a certain set of individuals, right? But I don't think that creates the proliferation and the financialization of this space that you need. Now, we, I know there are new approaches out there. I know there are people saying, hey, we'll give you the same liquidity. Um, th there's variations out there. I, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm definitely not the dumbest guy in the room. And I will tell you that the amount of information that you need to process, uh, the 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 the, the infrastructure, the processes that you need to kind of structure to enable all those things, uh, for what added benefit other than really hiding your KYC or whatever is, I don't know if it's worth it, right? For me, I actually like the idea of trading on an exchange through a club, knowing the guys that are actually operating that exchange and saying, you know, having a good relationship and saying, okay, this, this kind of makes sense. Like, you know, great. You, you know where my money is. You know what the margin is. Something adverse happens. I'm not being, you know, dictated by some smart contract that whatever, you know, may have gone wrong or may not have gone wrong. Um, you know, there's a human element of understanding somewhere. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, yeah, the, the, the club is, is not extinct. Uh, and I think that it, it would be a mistake to kind of think that um, because it is the greatest funnel of liquidity. I'm not going to go and trade $20 million on a DEX. I'd be hesitant to trade 100 grand on a DEX. Uh, but on a centralized exchange, I think the uh, natural, uh, you know, natural collective thought around that is probably, hey, I, I'd rather do this than that. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's that's simply the view. And I think that's echoed, I think, by a, a few 
large scale traders um, that and you know I, I, I kind of you know I, I'm glad it I'm glad that's that's the case because we are <laughs> a centralized exchange so I'm talking my own book here but I, I I'd love to be convinced otherwise because until you solve that liquidity problem and until you can prove to me that I'm not having that smart contract risk um, and that smart contract risk is more mitigated than these you know centralized exchange risk um, and that my I don't have to deal with a lot of different vectors uh, that things that can go wrong uh, I'm not convinced um, and so the burden of proof is, is that way and until that kind of transpires and I said you know I, I'm not one to say hey this doesn't happen I think cat's out of the bag but it takes time it's going to take many 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 years for this to happen and until then there's there's a lot of stuff to do still right like let's not build houses on Mars and before we actually can even get on a plane here I agree with a lot of points you made there. Exchanges survive and die by liquidity. I think that's the challenge with DEXs right now is how do they bootstrap liquidity given all of the overhead risks that you mentioned going forward, despite all of the activity and perhaps inflow of capital that we're seeing, you know, that can either be recycled from this whole yield farming stuff that's going on or actual new capital, right, coming into the space, uh, which some people think is is less likely the case because if you're a new participant in crypto, you're probably going to be trading on a centralized exchange uh, to start, right? Rather than yeah. just going straight to Uniswap, for example. So yeah, that, that remains the, the central yeah. question for any decks um, going forward is how do they bootstrap liquidity? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, 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 yeah, that, that's definitely one equation of it. I mean, I, I, I guess as a, um, as an, ex, an anecdotal experience, right? Like if, with all this craze and farming, all these different things and kind of moving stuff around. One of the things that kind of dawned on me was this like, okay, I'm paying high gas fees. Okay. For, you know, sometimes the gas fee didn't make any of these APYs worth it. Right. Or whatever the claims were. Um, and then you realize, well, okay, these gas fees are based on a protocol I'm using that, you know, for, you know, I guess the community was debating, they didn't even know the supply of, um, but uh, also at the same time, um, you know, they haven't been able to pass these, uh, uh, you know, improvements that have been badly needed for some time. Maybe they do, right? Maybe they do in some time. If not, there are alternatives. Okay, so now I've got to go learn about something else, right? Whether it's going to be hosted on Tron, Solana, whatever it is. For the average user, I don't think people appreciate what the tax is mentally to actually do these things, right? So you are creating more barriers to liquidity than you are not. And it's 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 very easy to kind of get lost in tunnel vision here because the closest associates you have will all kind of be thinking along the same lines as you. Um, and like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes that sense. And it's like you have then built a society on Mars and you're, you know, and you're saying to everybody, well, obviously you should be here. And meanwhile, you know, everybody, it's just like, well, wait, hold on a second. I don't even get, you know, I don't even get this part. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, so I think, um, yeah, liquidity is a part of it. I think guys will solve for liquidity. That's fine. I, I think that there needs to be simplification of the process and there needs to be somebody assuming the risk. Right. And here's why, here's why I don't think, the assumption of risk is going to be that simple, right? I'm going to use the analog of the lack of a prime broker in uh, centralized exchanges, right? So a lot of people in 2018, 2019 tried to kind of offer 
uh, a prime brokerage experience. Really, realistically, what they were offering was a back-to-back service where the risk was really of uh, you know getting dropped on a price or something of that sort. There's no true prime broker in this space. There can't be because the fees are kind of in, you know prohibitive for that. Uh, I think somebody will break into it that kind of wants to build market share over time. Maybe that's you know an incumbent. Maybe that's somebody from an external space. But you couldn't do that, right? And that's what. And a prime broker would mitigate a lot of these other uh, peripheral risks to kind of allow for focus on just even greater concentration of focus on just, you know, P&L, which is, again, what a trader wants. Right. Um, And so if we can't do that lift, what makes us think that we're going to kind of go ahead and, you know, mitigate something that's far more compounded in risks with all these smart contracts and create some sort of smart contract prime brokerage. Uh, It just, uh, it's not something that I I think someone did propose that. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe it was like a couple months ago, but we're we're still far off from that. Yeah, I mean, listen, you, you could propose. It's just just a um, you know, how far do you run sometimes? And and then don't get me wrong, money's being thrown at this, right? Like it it it, it is kind of being thrown in size at this. Um, I don't know if that alone solves it, um, and that alone creates the stickiness that you need for it to turn into an ecosystem. So um, I, I'm not a critic of DeFi in terms of its adoption. Uh, I, I think you know. There, there is a uh, a, a natural um, reason and a natural progression that way. Uh, but I think that the dismissal of CFI in that process, which is uh, usually a byproduct of anybody that is a proponent or a heavy proponent of DeFi, uh, is is wrong. And I think in doing so, a lot of opportunities are going to be missed. Well, as we wrap up here, Vishal, I wanted to ask you one of my favorite questions, which is, what's your most contrarian view as a trader? Oh, okay. Well, uh, let's see. I don't even know it's contrarian. I mean, uh, what is contrarian these days, right? Like, is what is, is you know, I, I used the example the other day, which was is that anybody that is bearish crypto right now, or bearish Bitcoin, or bearish Ether, like just let those be, I guess, the symbols of crypto. It's kind of like being against the tide, against against an outcome that everybody expects, right? Uh, this is you know, so I use the analog of the FX peg uh, to China, uh, you know, the, when the Chinese peg broke and. In 2010, there was a reval. So, if you were an FX trader at that time, and it wasn't moving for a while, and you get, there was frustrations, et cetera, whatever, oh, it's not moving, et cetera. If you went and you were short dollar China and you got squeezed higher on some sort of you know risk unwind, you can justify that loss. If you were actually long and you made money, nobody was going to give you a pat on the back. But if the peg broke and you lost money, you are going to lose your job and probably never going to be rehired again. Um, And so it kind of feels like that in crypto where you cannot justify, I think, trying to be cute here and losing, um, you know, perspective of a hold uh, of something that probably has a deeper ripple effect over the next couple of years in terms of price. You know, this is not a contrarian view. I think that Bitcoin will probably go a little higher in price, not necessarily because of its fundamentals or anything of that sort, but because of the other narratives that are kind of creating the tailwinds for it, right? At the minimum, right? Maybe because of its fundamentals, but necessarily, definitely because of the external environment. 
where my contrarian view probably comes in now is that people dismiss dollar as fiat. I don't think that's the right way of looking at things, right? And I think this is important, definitely in terms of corollaries for cryptos, is because the dollar itself has had many trillions of dollars thrown at it in terms of weakening power over the past six months or, or four months, really. And yet year to date, it is probably weakened by 3% or so. If you're thinking about fiat weakness, you want to think about a basket of fiat weakness. You do not want to think of dollar weakness. If anything, the dollar is not simply whatever, the cleanest of the dirty shirts or whatever. Um, it actually has a tremendous amount of staying power. Um, you know, the, the dynamic is a little different in terms of how intertwined it is in, in the global financial system. I read often dollar this, dollar that, dollar this. No, I think it's it, it's not the right way of thinking about it. You really have to think basket fiat. If there's going to be a weakening as a function of global macro policy, it's going to be basket fiat. So don't put your all your eggs in being short just dollar. I think then you get a bit more, you know, a lot more juice out of actual Bitcoin prices or Bitcoin gains. Yeah. Very interesting. All right, Michelle, we'll, we'll end with a quick round of rapid fire. Do you think basis will widen or compress over the next month? Compress. What was your favorite product to trade in the traditional markets? Digital options. And do you think we are in a DeFi bubble? And if so, how close to the top are we? We're past the top. We're, we're past the top. Okay. With that, Vishal, how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about Alpha 5? Yeah, sure. Well, um, my Twitter handle, I'm Chain Shaw, as one did back in the day. Uh, so you catch me there or alpha5.io. Don't be scared by the GUI. It's ugly. I get it. We're working on everything on UAT. So in the next week or so, when we're kind of pushing things out to live, you'll see it. But do sign up for updates. Would love to see anybody wants to participate to kind of get on there and uh, happy to kind of uh, engage. We've got a Telegram channel as well, mostly more for the A5T token, but Alpha 5 as well. Happy to take any inbound queries as and when they come. Excellent. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on Crypto Unstacked. Best of luck with the launch and look forward to catching up very soon. Great. Thanks a lot. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.